0: First of all, I want to thank Ark Ministry for inviting me here this week and for giving me this opportunity to answer a question about who is Jesus and why we live our whole life for him. Wow, after that uh, worship, I haven't done that for a while. My voice wasn't trained. Come on, Holy Spirit, get me through this. So that was two questions in that one topic. But I want to initially add a third question. And that third question is, who Jesus is not. And I think it's important that we look at who he is not because there's a lot of myths out there in the world about who Jesus is. Some of them are flat out lies. Well, basically they're all really lies because they're not giving the true Jesus. And um, why is this important? Because I think these falsehoods that are out in the world they they sow confusion and so people that are not followers of Jesus will then tend to either follow after the false Jesus or they just won't believe it at all because it's too fantastic although the true Jesus is fantastic i have to admit that too and also it's a problem for believers because it starts sowing doubt in their minds was he just a good man was he was he a liar When I get to the part about who Jesus is, I'm going to look at what, who Peter says that he is, who Paul says that he is, and then finally, who Jesus says that he is. So the, it's important to listen to all three of them, but when I get to who Jesus says he is, that's the crux of the matter there. Well, the first myth out there about who Jesus is, is that Jesus himself is a myth, there's a guy named Bart Ehrman who is an agnostic atheist. He breaks atheism down into these different subcategories, but let's just say he's an atheist. He wrote a book in 2012 titled, Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. Now, Bart Ehrman is a New Testament scholar, and he's well-respected among the atheists and Christians actually look at him and say, well, you know, he's honest. He, he actually believes Jesus exists. But Barth Ehrman grew up in the church, and then he fell away and g- gave up his faith. But in this book, he actually debunks the myths of these people that he calls Jesus mythicists. And that's basically anybody that believes Jesus never really existed. Now, so many atheists don't believe Jesus existed, but... Who else might not believe that Jesus existed? Would you be surprised if I told you that there are people that call themselves Christians who do not believe that Jesus actually existed? They see Christianity and they see the person of Jesus basically as made up, but they love the way Jesus lived his life. They love the things Jesus said. And so they decide to live their lives as a Christian Basically, I guess you would say, as a Christian, without believing that Jesus actually existed. Listen to what a friend of mine, who has a Christian apologetics blog on uh, on the internet, he's he's an Indian who lives in Toronto. He, his family immigrated, immigrated to Toronto years ago, and he was reply or was looking at a lot of the comments on his one of his latest blogs. He hadn't been on for a month, so he thought he'd scroll through. Now listen to what he says. I'll call him BG in this example. Came across one that implied that we can never know what the Bible really says because it was translated into English by white men in power who wanted to control what we think. Then he says, I really hope I'm dreaming. And then, then he writes to H.W., who happens to be an Anglo friend of mine. He says, Thought you might appreciate the ingenuity displayed in the comment. H.W. writes back, this looks perfectly fine in my professional opinion. And then B.G. writes, okay, we're in a shared dream. Uh, Then S.S., who lives in India, he writes to B.G. and he says, that's a common line of thought found among the progressive brand, far more than non-Christians. Hardly a day goes by when I don't come across variations of it. B.G., in India or online? SS, online. <laughs> BG, ah, oh, that stuff's expected. SS, I've even had, quote, I call myself a Christian, but I don't believe in God. Let that sink in, he says. Now, now when I was developing this talk, I was just scrolling through Facebook and I saw that. I go, whoa, this is great. This will give a great example of what I'm talking about. And then uh, BG, yeah, that's normal cultural Christianity. It's pretty common here, meaning in Canada. So SS, this brand of Christianity makes neo-atheism fairly sane and palatable. So these guys know a lot about this stuff. Okay, BG, I mean, we've had this spiritual but not religious folks around for ages now. This is just a new label, Christianity without Christ appears attractive to them. I suppose, regardless of how devoid of content it is. I love the part where he puts how devoid of content it is because that's really what it is without Jesus. And then SS, he puts the finishing touch on this. Christianity without Christ, godliness without God. I hope they have a logic for dummies lying around somewhere, which I'm going, well, maybe you didn't need to put that in there. But, but you get it, you see what he's saying. It's illogical to believe in Christianity without Christ. So, so just because one skeptic and most Christians, as I gave you an example, but true Christians do believe that Jesus is real. But does that mean that he is? Not necessarily. But I want to make a case that he is. First, the writers of the New Testament, they believe that he was real. Now, there are many arguments against those making him up. Those guy, the, the writers making them up because all they had to do was denounce him and they would have saved their lives because many of them died because they knew that Jesus was real. They had actually met him. But um, let's not use those New, New Testament writers because we're, if we try to do that with non-believers, they'll just push back and say, it's our Christian bias getting in the way. Okay, that's fine, but if I've got Christian bias, you've got atheistic bias. So you need to own up to that. I'll own up to mine, but you've got to own up to yours. And so whenever somebody tries that tactic with you, you can always turn it back around on them and say, but you have to admit. And sometimes they will, and they'll laugh it off. So I'm not going to use the New Testament scholars. I'm going to talk about the Jewish non-Christian writers and a couple of Roman writers. So this is a guy named Josephus. Most people have heard of Josephus, the Jewish historian. This is what Josephus wrote in AD 93. Now, before I go into that, he's written some stuff that they think some later Christians actually edited it and made it look more like Jesus, uh, that he believes in the resurrection in this. He's not. He's he's, He's a thoroughgoing Jew, and so he does not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. Here's what he writes. At this time there appeared Jesus, a wise man, for he was a doer of startling deeds, a teacher of people who received the truth with pleasure. And he gained a following among many Jews and among many of Greek origins. And when Pilate, because of an accusation, I almost said Pilates. And when Pilate, because of an accusation made by the leading men, almost a- a men among us, condemned them, him to the cross, those who had loved him previously did not cease to do so. And up until this day, the tribe of Christians, named after him, has not died out. Now, Jesus is also referenced in the Jewish Talmud, which, doing this research, I'm like, hey, I didn't, didn't know that. And, but the date of this is hard to, to determine, because the Talmud was actually written over a long period of time, starting in around 70 AD, up until, I believe, 700 so we don't know exactly when this was written, but this was written in the Jewish Talmud. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshua, Jesus, was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald went forth and cried, he is going forth to be stoned because he has practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. When they say the word sorcery, that leads to me to believe that he was actually doing miracles. So they're actually attesting to the miraculous Jesus Christ. Anyone who can say anything in his favor, let him come forward and plead on his behalf. But since nothing was brought forward in his favor, he was hanged on the eve of the Passover. Lines up perfectly with, with Scripture. And you've got to imagine the, the Jewish Talmud lining up so perfectly with, with our New Testament. It's like, wow, really? Yeah, Really? So Tacitus, this is the first Roman writer I'm going to use. Tacitus was a Roman historian. And in 115 AD, he wrote, Therefore, to squelch the rumor, Nero created scapegoats and subjected to the most refined tortures, those whom the common people called Christians. A group hated for their abominable crimes. You know what their abominable crimes were? They wouldn't bow down and worship Nero, but they did good deeds. They built hospitals. They built schools they prayed for people. Those were considered abominable deeds. The author of this name, Christ, during the reign of Tiberius, had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. Supposed, Suppressed for the moment, the deadly superstition broke out again, not only in Judea, the land which originated this evil, but also in the city of Rome, where all sorts of horrendous and shameful practices, let's should say the city of Berkeley, um, from every part of the world, converge and are fervently cultivated. Yeah, it even spread over here. That's amazing. And I'm, I've, I just witnessed it. It's awesome. And finally, my last ancient, extra-biblical text. I selected a lesser-known fellow. Uh, his name is Mara Bar Serapian. Has anybody ever heard of him? Yeah, that's what I... That's the I was about a month ago. Um... A Syrian, he was a Syrian and a Stoic philosopher. And he wrote this letter to his son sometime after 70 AD. And in it, he writes about Socrates, Pythagoras, and the king of the Jews, Jesus Christ. I've stripped out what he said about the other two, but basically it's a comparison of all three of them, about how uh, they, were, they were executed. They're all three basically killed for their beliefs. This is what he says about, I've stripped out the Jesus stuff. What advantage did the Jews gain from their executing their wise king? It was just after that that their kingdom was abolished. God justly avenged these three wise men, referring to Pythagoras, Socrates, and Jesus. The Jews, ruined and driven from their land, live in complete dispersion. Nor did the wise king die for good, because he had just explained that the other two didn't die for good. He lived on in the teachings which he had given. I mean, just absolutely amazing. So it would seem that Jesus is not a myth. He actually did walk this earth. And so, in, in today's vernacular, I'd say Jesus is not fake news. There's no alternative facts in Jesus' story. But who else is Jesus not? Many of you have probably heard that some people call him a good man, a teacher a prophet, but that he wasn't God. And a lot of these are some of the Eastern religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, and Islam. Before I go into what they say, I want to, I want to make a, a caveat here. Uh, I'm going to be sort of a reductionist at this point because there's so many different things in all these religions. I can't know all of them, although I do know some people that do know all of them. Scary. But so I'm going to reduce this down to the main ideas that they say about Jesus. So if you've got an issue with me misrepresenting something, just come and see me later and we can, we can work it out. Okay, this is what I found. Uh, this was on a website called Shepherd's Daughter on the, uh, on the internet. Buddha and Jesus Christ are exemplary figures in the Christian and Buddhist faith. But Buddhists cannot believe in Jesus Christ as he is presented in the Christian faith. They can acknowledge him as a man and not the Son of God, because in Buddhism there is no God. He cannot be the Savior, a Redeemer who forgives sin and bestows new lives and blessings to those who follow Him. Jesus must have lived somewhat within the precepts of, uh, that a devout Buddhist would live or would have ascribed to, but that is as far as their acknowledgement of Him goes. There is no God. There can be no personal Savior. Enlightenment cannot be given. And so Jesus could very well be a mythical figure. So there they even actually espouse two things, that he might have existed or that he might not have. So um, Christ could very well be a mythical figure. The story of a man you would tell your kids when you want to teach them about love and self-sacrifice, but nothing more. So, okay, I was a reductionist, but I think that's even a worse crime of reductionism right there. Nothing more? <clears throat> there was a. Okay. Um, so let's take a quick look at Hinduism. That was Buddhism. So let's go to Hinduism. So, if those of you that are familiar with, with Jesus' life know that he was seen at the age of 12 at um, the temple. After Passover, he, uh, he didn't catch up with the family, so they came back and looked over and they found him in the temple. That's the last thing we hear about Jesus until he starts his ministry 18 years later at the age of 30. Well the Hindus Hinduism believes that during that time Jesus had gone to the east and learned about all the yogic traditions and then he came back and became a guru to the Jews that's that's hinduism and finally let's look at islam there's quite a few sects within the uh, in islam and they have some very differing Views on what happened to Jesus. Now, they don't believe Jesus died on the cross. None of them believe that. But they do believe that he was taken up into paradise. There's two major theories on Jesus one's called the substitution theory, and one's called the swoon theory. The substitution theory is that Allah made somebody else appear as though they were Jesus, and he was on the cross, and he died, but Jesus was somewhere else, and he went to heaven paradise, Um, some of the sects believe that that guy on the cross was Judas. That's the substitution theory. The other theory is the swoon theory. And that's that Jesus was on the cross, and the pain and suffering was so great that it appeared that he died, but when they took him down off the cross and put him in the grave, in the tomb, that he woke up before three days and snuck out, and then somehow he pushed the rock back. It, it just makes no sense. Plus, if you know the, the biblical stories, he was pierced, and they made sure that he was dead. That's the two theories from Islam. Now, how many have heard of C.S. Lewis and a book called Mere Christianity? A classic. You guys, if you haven't read it, get it and read it. It, it, was, it was actually a recording that C.S. Lewis made during World War II. The British government actually paid him to make this, and he tells all about Mere Christianity doesn't get all fancy or anything, but he gets down to the bare bones of mere Christianity. And in it, he says, "I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, being Jesus." "Quote: I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God." End quote. That is the one thing we must not say, a man who was merely a man and said that sort of things that Jesus, would not, Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. Yeah. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Again, that's Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. So I believe there's so much historical and archaeological evidence to support his existence that there, there, is, there is so much also, that any reputable historian, secular or uh, Christian, actually does believe, just like Bart Ehrman, that there's evidence for Jesus' existence. I, I like the way um, that, we, that C.S. Lewis has actually boiled it down. We can also add, add legend. Legend, liar, lunatic, or lord. So the four L's. And that, that way you can remember what the, the myths are about Jesus and the one truth. Okay, so now that we've talked about who Jesus is, is not, let's look at who he is. And remember in my opening statement, I said I was going to talk about what Peter, Paul, and Jesus say. So let's start out with, with Peter. He, when in, in the course of his writings in the New Testament... He, he attributes different things to Jesus. And this is based on what he wrote. So, so first he says that Jesus is the author of life, the risen and exalted Lord, and the holy and righteous one. So what does it mean that Jesus is the author of life? Basically, it confirms that he's the giver and source of all life. And he not only did this at creation... If you're reading John, uh, he was there. He also did this again. He he reinforced it when he died, was buried, and was resurrected, and that was for our eternal salvation. So, and you can see this evidence or or um, referenced all throughout the New Testament. Let's do, let's look in the Bible or look in Acts three. 13, 15 and see. Now, I don't expect you guys to keep up with me on all of these. So there's going to be a, a cheat sheet, I guess, that will be available afterwards that lists my major themes and then all of the verses and passages that I've quoted in here. That way, on your free time, you can go back and look at it. Maybe listen to the audio on this and maybe do a, do a little study at home with your Bible and just follow through. So Acts three thirteen through fifteen, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of our fathers, has glorified His servant Jesus. You handed Him over to be killed, and you disowned Him before Pilate, though He had decided to let Him go. You disowned the holy and righteous One, and asked that a murderer be released to you. You killed the Author of life, but God raised Him from the dead, referencing the resurrection. We are witnesses of this, he says. He also inferred that Jesus is omniscient. Omniscient, all-knowing. Omni, meaning all, and scient, meaning uh, to know. Uh, after, and how do we know this? How does, where does Paul or Peter talk about this? Well, after Judas had betrayed Jesus and he had killed himself, the apostles had narrowed it down to two men. And then they did this. They prayed. Acts 1.24 says this, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men. So basically, Jesus knows everything. Show which one of, which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry, and apostleship from which Judas turned aside, to go on in his place. At another spot, John 16.29-31. This isn't necessarily Peter, it might be, but it says his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly, not in any figure of speech. Now we know that you know all things and need none to question you. By this we believe that you came from God. Jesus answered them, do you now believe? Peter also believes that Jesus is the Lord who saves, forgives, and we should call on his name. In the New Testament, when the word Lord is used, it generally is referencing Jesus. In the Old Testament, big, big L is Yahweh. Now watch what happens here. The Old Testament's full of people using God or Yahweh, to save them or forgive them. And here's a couple examples, which I just said Jesus, Peter said that about Jesus. Psalm twenty-five, eleven: for your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Psalm 54, 1, save me, O God, by your name, and vindicate me by your might. Psalm 79, 9, help us, O God, of our salvation, for the glory of your name, deliver us and atone for our sins, for your name's sake. So those all reference Yahweh. But Peter believed that Jesus is the one who does all that. At Pentecost, he told them to repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And when Peter says all these things about Jesus, what is he trying to tell us? If we look at all the things that Peter says about Jesus, you could also say the same things about Yahweh in the Old Testament. Boiling it down, Peter is saying Jesus is God. Yeah. So now let's let's move on to Paul. Paul wrote a lot of the New Testament. He wrote either 13 or 14 books of the New Testament, depending on whether or not he wrote Hebrews. That's still up in the air. They're still studying it. Who knows if it'll ever be solved before Jesus comes again. And then, we, then we'll find out. <clears throat> but there are conservative scholars who, or actually I should say liberal scholars, who say that Paul only wrote six books. And I, I believe this is a, a, a scheme to try to uh, undermine our faith in the written word. But that's another, that's another topic altogether. I could go on. But we'll just leave it at that. But for, this purpose, for these purposes, I'm going to go with 13. Because when I quote Paul, I may quote out of some of the books that these liberal scholars say uh, he didn't write. So how can you say Paul said this? But we'll do this. Well, I'm going to attribute these all to Paul. But, but before I get to Paul, I want to, I want to look at one of the things that Paul really maintains is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. When I was in worship, I started looking at the, the words of the music. And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Y- you guys may think that me and the worship team got together and said, hey, okay, when I, I want you to play this song, this song, because they fit right into my talk. No, that's not what happened. So um, it was just blown away. Now, I did, I did co- coordinate with one song. and that, That's going to be at the end of the service. But that doesn't count. This was really amazing. I'm like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to talk about that i want to talk about that. The fulfillment of the law, yeah. So it was really cool. It, it let me know that um, I'm not up here alone. Somebody's helping me. So um, the fulfillment of the law. But why does he believe that? Because in Matthew five seventeen, Jesus said this. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. So in Romans 8, 1 through 4, Paul writes this. It's about the coming and fulfilling of the law. Romans 8, 1 through 4. It's about Jesus' coming and the fulfilling of the law. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus will set you free from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and to deal with sin. He condemns sin in the flesh so that the just requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walks not according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So what does this mean for us? We need to go to Galatians 2.16 and see what that says. Paul says... Paul again writes, yet we know that person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. In other words, Jesus fulfilled the law because we could not, so that we could be justified by faith. I mean, if you guys want to go back and, and look at that later, and I'll, I'll be here for Taco Sunday, um, come, and, come and talk to me, because that, that really excites me the way everything is in, intertwined in this Bible. Paul also believed that Jesus is preexistent. So that would be totally consistent with him being an incarnate human. Uh, Romans 8.3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, he condemns sin in the flesh. So I've got, I've got about five scriptures that actually reinforce this idea that Paul's trying to, to give us, that Jesus has existed throughout eternity. 1 Corinthians 8.6 Yet for, for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. I mean, that goes back to worship. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom all things and we exist through him. I mean, that's almost word for word what we sang earlier. 1 Corinthians 10.4. And all drank the same spiritual drink. This one's really cool. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them. And the rock was Christ. In your Bible, if you have their cross references in the middle column, center column, that will be referenced back to the Exodus when they struck the rock. That rock was Jesus Christ. Anyway, that's what Paul says. I'm not saying it. Paul said it, and he's inspired by the Holy Spirit. First Corinthians fifteen, forty-seven. The man the first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven, and the first man being Adam, second man being Jesus Christ. It says he comes from heaven. Second Corinthians eight, nine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That though he was rich, yet for our sake, he became poor. So that through his poverty, we might become rich. So rich in heaven, poor here on earth, rich. We're poor here on earth. And I'm not talking about uh, earthly riches. And then we go to heaven. And then finally, Galatians 4, four. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So those things point to Jesus existing for eternity. So like Peter and Paul, or like Peter, Paul also makes correlations between uh, who Jesus is and who Yahweh is in the Old Testament. One indication that Paul thought Jesus was Yahweh comes from the fact that he used Old Testament passages which referred to Yahweh and then applies them to Jesus in the New Testament, and that seems to be very similar to what I just pointed out to you with Peter. But let's look, a few, look at a few of these. Romans ten thirteen, for whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. I think Paul also, Peter also talked about this. But in Joel two thirty two it says, and it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. Remember, Jesus, Lord in the New Testament, Yahweh, Lord in the Old Testament first corinthians two sixteen for who has known the mind of the Lord that he will instruct him, but we have the mind of christ isaiah forty thirteen who has directed the spirit of the Lord or has his counsellor, or as his counselor has informed him New testament paul or yeah paul 1 corinthians ten twenty six for the earth is the lord's and all it contains psalm twenty four one the earth is the lord's, and all it contains. The world and those who dwell in it. So you can see these correlations between who Yahweh is and who Jesus is. Second Corinthians ten seventeen. But he who boasts is to boast in the Lord. Back to the Old Testament, Jeremiah nine twenty four. But let him who boasts boast of this: that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight. In these things, declares the Lord. So Paul, it would seem, comes to the same conclusion that Peter does. That Jesus is God. So now I want to look at what Jesus said. Well, if you have a red-letter Bible and you open it up, you can flip through it and you can see Jesus said a lot of things. A lot. It's all good, just like those non-believers They say, wow, that's good stuff. I want to live like that. But I I could go through a lot of that stuff where he, he may call himself God, he may tell us how to live our lives, but I really want to home in on one verse, one passage in particular. If you were to pick one where Jesus claims to be God, which verse in the Bible would you pick? Years ago, I sat in on a lecture from a guy named Gary Habermas, who's a scholar. He's also a a professor at Liberty University. And he asked this question to his students. Which verse would you use if you're trying to explain that Jesus actually claimed to be God? Because there are people out there, mainly the Islamic uh, religion, that does not believe Jesus ever claimed to be God. So he asked his students this question and um, he said most of them went to John and selected John 8.58 where Jesus said, I assure you before Abraham was, I am. Or John 10.30, the father and I are one. They also cited John 20, 28, 29 where Thomas touched him and said, "You're, you're my Lord, my God. And people think that that's if Jesus didn't agree with him, that he would have rebuked Thomas. Those are all good. I, I, I can't argue those. Those do, but I don't know how convincing somebody who's not a believer would, would, look, would, would believe that. But the one I'm going to give you is more of a logic exercise and a word comparison. So, the one I want to mention that I think we should home in on today is Mark 14, 61 through 64. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to this one because I'm going to break this down for you. So uh, Mark 14, 61 through 64. But he kept silent and did not answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying to him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am. And you shall see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Tearing his clothes, the high priest said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. How does it seem to you? And they all condemned him to be deserving of death. Here's a little background on this passage of scripture. The Jewish leaders were looking for a testimony in order to condemn Jesus to death. However, much of the testimony they were receiving either was false and they knew it wouldn't hold up or a lot of it didn't agree. One guy would tell one story about the certain event, maybe of of him healing somebody on the Sabbath and somebody would tell another story. But the stories didn't line up. So finally the high priest gets fed up and that's where he cuts to the chase and said, are you the Christ? And so Jesus... Responded the way he did. But let's break this response down. I want to break it down into three parts. Part one is where Jesus says, I am. Or in the Greek, agoami. Some scholars do not think that this is where Jesus was referring to the I am in Exodus. Where Moses is at the burning bush. And uh, Jesus or God tells him, tell them that, that my name is I am. I am sent you. But I personally believe that it is. But there's there's, common, there's a lot of commentaries on this. And I'm also aware that um, in John, when Jesus is arrested in the garden, he actually says, I'll go me again. And everybody falls down. And I don't know if they fell down when he said this or not. So that's one excuse that they use that maybe that's not the I am that he meant. I am God, actually. But I think that if you do take that stand, that that I am is the same, then that just furthers the evidence against Jesus. Part two is, and you shall see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. So there's three contexts. I'm going to break this second part down into three parts. There's three contexts in which the Son of Man is used in the Bible. It's used as a regular, ordinary human being, as in Numbers 23, 19. Quote, God is not a man who lies or a son of man who changes his mind. End quote. Another good example is in Psalm 146, 3. Do not put your trust in princes nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. So it's obvious from the context of those two verses that it's not referencing Jesus. So it, it's used 12 ways in the Bible in that manner. Like I could refer to myself as a son of man. Obviously, I'm not calling myself God. The second way the son of man is used is as it's used in Ezekiel 2 1 and 2 3, I believe. So it's used as the name of a prophet. And if you've read Ezekiel, you'll know that Ezekiel is referring to himself, son of man. And it's used about a hundred times in that context. So let's turn to Daniel 7, 13, 14. And you guys may already be thinking about that. But if you've got your Bible and you, or your, your app, you might want to go here and follow this. Because this is the third way in which Son of man is used in the Bible. Daniel seven thirteen through 14 says this. In my vision at night, now this is Daniel writing this. I looked and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will uh, never be destroyed. Same thing as we we sang up here earlier. How did we do that? So, that's the way in which Jesus obviously, I mean, it's obvious. That's how he was using it when he was addressing the high priest. Because if he had been using it in any other manner, the, the high priest would have been very disappointed. He wouldn't have nailed him. Nailed him, yeah. Okay, also in the second part, is seated at the right hand of power. Psalm one ten uh, one says, the Lord declared to my soul, to, to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So if he would have said this alone, he would have been sentenced to death because, uh, for blas- blasphemy because he claimed to be sitting at the right hand of, of God. But he did this whole thing and it's all one big statement. So let's get to part three is coming with the clouds of heaven. Coming with the clouds of heaven always refers to God. And the priests also knew that this referred to Daniel seven, thirteen through fourteen. So that was that was what did it. Now, why would the priest not necessarily be able to convict Jesus unless he referred to Daniel seven? Here's why. The high priest probably did not take Jesus' admission to be the Messiah as blasphemy. Just probably just, if that, he just did that, probably would think he was a, a lunatic. He did, he did see as blasphemy, Jesus' claim to be the son of man who approaches God's throne in Daniel 7 and the one who sits at God's right hand, sharing in his authority Later rabbis, and um, they, they condemn this understanding of the, of the Messiah. And I don't know if it's because of uh, this account of Jesus at, at trial or not. But they, they don't accept that, that that's what the Messiah is going to be doing. I don't know enough about Judaism. I've got a good friend who is Jewish and I'm going to work with him on that. So I'll I give you guys a better explanation. Um, threatening the high priest was related to the charge of blasphemy and Jesus did that when he said that he would he didn't say it but he intimated that having seated at the right hand of God the Father that he would be judging that that high priest and nobody judges the high priest except God so that was really the coup d'etat I think that's the one that did it so so finally we come to our third question so we talked about who Jesus isn't and who Jesus is And now I want to talk to you about why we base our whole life on him. I think this is actually the easiest part of my talk because if we actually look at what I talked about, who he is not and who he is, I mean, how could we not want to live our whole lives for him? He's the Messiah, the Son of God incarnate. He's the author of our lives, of all life. So it makes total sense that we honor him by serving him in in, in everything that we do. That being said, I want to tell you about me. Um, I grew up in the church. And as you know, I was in the army. And one day I was in training and there were a bunch of us Second lieutenants learning how to call for fire. Now, when I say call for fire, let me, let me explain that term because we weren't actually in a, a master's prophecy class at the University of Elijah. No, we were actually on a desolate hill in the middle of non-Christians out here, if there are any. Ask your Christian friend. And um, we were in the middle of Oklahoma on a hilltop. And we're learning how to call field artillery fire onto a target. One of the fellows up there was Jewish. And so we asked him questions. I asked him a question like, well, do you have the Old Testament? He goes, yeah. I go, well, what do you call it? He goes, the Bible. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, obviously. But um, so then it got down to we were all going around, about a dozen of us up there, eating lunch, eating our MREs. And it kind of broke down into everybody telling what we believed. About God, and it came to me, and say, Fuller, what are you? And I go, I'm a Christian. Well, the minute I said that, Lieutenant Ramos busted out laughing. I know, deep belly laugh. Yeah, right, Fuller, you're a Christian, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I mean that was convicting. That grieved me because have you ever heard the the, the question, if you were ever arrested for being a Christian, would they have enough evidence to convict you? Well, Ramos just acquitted me right there. I'm like, oh my God, this is not good. So I got to, to thinking about that and praying and, and actually repenting and deciding that I was definitely going to recommit my life to, to Christ because I wanted to emanate the love of Christ wherever I went, to whomever I talked to, whoever saw me. So um, when I did that, I really started, I, I went back to church, really started studying the Bible. And realized that it's not legalism either. It's like I wasn't trying to be a good person. I was trying to understand what it meant to live my life for Christ. And so I... um, Yeah. It wasn't doing good deeds. It was loving Christ and then, as you know, out out of your love for Christ and serving God, you will do good deeds. And that basically why we live our life for Christ. Now, I'm not going to do a Q&A after this, but I want to anticipate a question that if I was given a Q&A, which I do at university missions, if I was given a talk after this, I mean, I've never seen a a pastor, actually, after a sermon open up to Q&A. That'd get kind of weird. But that'd be cool. But, no, but so... I'm not going to do it because basically this is kind of an apologetic sermon. But I would anticipate a question that I would get. And what I do a lot of times is I anticipate questions. The one question I would anticipate is, Hey Lonnie, yeah, that's real cool. We should and we, we, why would we? But how do we? Because we can say you should do this and you possibly, you know, we should live our lives for, for Christ. But what's that look like? How do Does it work? I'm struggling here. Help me. And so I went through the scripture, which actually tells us. And I came up with, I think, uh, five scriptures that I think will really help you in understanding how to live your life for Christ. John 13, 34 through 35. A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone wishes to follow me, and this is a tough one, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And I know people who have given up a lot to follow Jesus. James 1, Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. You know, we're supposed to be in the world, not of the world, and it's, it's difficult, it's a struggle, but with the help of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, you can do it. First Thessalonians 5, 9 through 11. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. And finally, this last one which I believe is the purpose of why we're here on, on this earth and also tells us how to live. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And as we know, Jesus boiled all those Commandments down to two. And if we can do that, everything you do will be for Jesus. So I'd like to ask the worship team. How early am I? Yeah, close. Worship team and prayer team, can you come down? And I want to pray. Oh. Yeah. What's that? Oh, okay. Oh, okay. Oh, um, you, uh, Suki wants to come up and, and say something before the worship team takes the stage.
1: Just as you were preaching, one of the um, kind of images that I had on, in my mind was I saw um, the picture of a rock. And I feel like a lot of times as we walk with the Lord, there are going to be seasons of shaking. And every single place that is built on an area where it is true, 100% truth, that area, even if everything else shakes, that won't shake. But when you start to start at a very, very beginning... The fact that Jesus was a real person, and then you build upon that. Then, who was Jesus, and who did he say that he was? Just like um, Lonnie was sharing, each one of those things then put something really stable mm, yeah. under your feet. And it, and I just saw like the rock that you're standing on continue to grow. And the and a lot of times I think what um, the enemy tries to do is try to poke holes and see this yep. is where the things that you believed about God failed you or didn't come through, so thus he must be completely not true. But that's not true. Actually, what it exposes is the areas where there are untruths about the things that we believed about Jesus. And so I think the more areas that we start to understand and identify as being unshakably true... <laughs> yeah the more stable we are. And that's why it's so critical to understand who Jesus is. And that's why the Bible calls him the rock. And so as you were sharing, I was just seeing like a picture of us standing on that rock and the rock under our feet growing and becoming more stable. And so as the times come, as we come towards the end of history, as everything else becomes torrential around us, we are solid. And that's one of the reasons we invited you here is because we want the, us to be solid. The Bible admonishes us to stand firm. A lot of warfare is standing firm. Sometimes we think it's about going out there and doing this. Mm-hmm. But really, there is also a component that no matter what comes, we stand because we know. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I yeah. just wanted I think, to share that's that.
0: That's great. <clears throat> so now if we can have you guys come forward. Team also. So if you're here for the first time, or if you're here, maybe you're not here for the first time, but if you've never given your life to Jesus, I want to offer you guys that opportunity this morning or this afternoon. Also, if what I said struck you and you realize that I haven't been living my life for Jesus, even though I call myself a Christian, I want to make that commitment, recommit my life today. So um, I wanna leave you in a simple prayer and it, it basically says, I'm sorry, please and thank you. It's a very short prayer. If you're one who, in either of those two categories, go ahead and say it to yourself as I pray it out loud. So, Heavenly Father, I'm sorry I have not lived my life for you either because I've never accepted you as my Lord and Savior or because I became a nominal Christian and did not commit my whole life to you. Please forgive me for not believing in your son and for not living as if I knew him and therefore did not allow others to see Christ in me. Thank you for sending your son Jesus Christ to die on the cross for my sins allowing me to be justified by faith in you. We pray these things in your precious son, Jesus Christ's name, amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer, whether for the first time or you were recommitting your life, you need to tell somebody. We've got the prayer team up here and you can either do that, which I, I highly recommend, or tell, if, if you're here visiting with somebody, tell somebody who brought you. Or tell somebody out, while you're stuffing a taco in your face. But tell somebody, because you, just make a public announcement so that God can see you do that. And it, it, just, it, it just makes it so real when you share it. And uh, that's really all I've got now, so worship team, all right, let me get out of the way.